Good morning, ladies. As we continue our study in Habakkuk, let's just take um, a look at where we're at. God, in his sovereignty, he was sending the Babylonians to judge the people of Judah for their sin. Sorry, I was just looking for something here. Yet Habakkuk was stunned by this fact because the Babylonians were worse than the people of Judah. The Babylonians were proud, ruthless, and evil, trusting in themselves and putting themselves in the place of God. In due time, though, in God's timing, the Babylonians would themselves be judged for their sin. Last week, Heather took us through four of the five woes that God pronounced on the Babylonians. And remember, these woes were God highlighting their specific sins and then pronouncing his coming judgment upon them. These woes, they alerted people, and they also assured people. They assured the Lord's people that God's judgment was coming upon their enemies. It also encouraged them to remain loyal and faithful to God, despite all the troubles and difficulties they were going through. We saw woes one and two, Warnings that judgment was coming because of the Babylonians' greed and ruthlessness, how they gained things for themselves with violence. Woes three and four, warnings that judgment was coming because of their evil leadership, their abusing power over others. They chose sin, and sin corrupted every part of their life. We read in chapter 1, verse 11, then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. Their own might is their God. They were trusting in their own strength. Their own strength is their God. So today we'll look at the fifth woe, the final warning from the Lord. We'll break it down into four sections. Verse 18, worthless idols. Verse 19, powerless idols. Verse 20, there is only one true God. At the conclusion, we wait in silence and worship him alone. But let me just pray for us before we begin. Lord, we thank you for this time where we can open up your word and hear from you. We pray that you will teach us today. May we have open ears and hearts to hear and understand and to apply this to our lives so that in turn you would be glorified. I pray that you provide me your wisdom, clarity, and peace. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. It's okay. No, oh, there's usually this piece of wood here that helps me keep my sheets up, but that's okay. <laughs> Perfect. That's what I'm looking for. Sorry, ladies. It kind of helps me. That's great. Thank you. Okay, sorry. Let's continue. The fifth woe. It speaks against their practice of idolatry. So let's look at what idolatry actually means. Here's a few definitions from a number of commentaries. Idolatry. Trusting something other than God to direct your life. Putting full attention, affection, or worship in a thing or person or idea which has no substance. It's what you live for other than God. 
It's rejecting God, God's truth, and the use of a substitute of some kind to replace the role of God in life. Martin Luther said that idolatry is whatever your heart clings to and confides in that is really your God, your functional savior. And Lydia Brownback on page 69 in our book, she puts it in a way that perhaps we could relate to. That whatever quick fix escape lies close by, food, drugs, alcohol, sleep, social media, shopping, these can become little gods, idols in our heart that push out our trust in the one true God. So now we have a better understanding of what an idol is or what idolatry is. And before we look at woe number five and see what it's all about, there's one thing that stands out differently than before. I'm not sure if you noticed, but Habakkuk doesn't come right out and proclaim the fifth woe like he did with all the other ones. Each of the first four woes began right off with woe to him, woe to him, woe to him, woe to him. But just before the fifth woe is pronounced, Habakkuk changes things up. He holds off saying woe to him, and he begins with a question. He begins with a question, and let's look at that in verse 18. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? It's like he's saying, okay, pay attention here. I have something really important to say. I want to point out something to you. So listen to me. Each woe, woe one, two, three, four, they were building up to this last woe. And this last woe was pointing towards the one true living God. What profit is an idol? What value is an idol? Obviously, it's none. No value whatsoever. All the ugliness that was spoken of in woes one, two, three, and four, all the wickedness, the extortion, the murder, the cruelty, it's all the result or fruit of idolatry. F.F. Bruce, a biblical scholar, put it this way, quote, the idolatry of the Babylonians may have been viewed as the source of all the other atrocities previously mentioned. Because their religious orientation was wrong, their moral standards had to be perverted. As the creator of God who could not speak, they had to make up their own standard for a way of life, unquote. Their life of sin was a result of their trust in their own gods, trusting in gods who could not speak. Verse 18 continues to say, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes, makes what? Speechless idols. These idols were worthless idols. They were powerless, made by their own hands, speechless and helpless. If you want to turn um, in your Bibles to Isaiah 44, we're just going to read Isaiah 44, 9 to 17, just to hear what Isaiah says about idols. So I'll just give you a little bit of time to find Isaiah 44, 9 to 17. You can just follow along if you'd like. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. 
who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing, behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble, let them stand forth, they shall be terrified, they shall be put to shame. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. And he also makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half, over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. He warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm, I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. These are men, men making gods out of material things, bowing down to something he has shaped or carved with his own hands. So-called gods are that are powerless and helpless, man trusting in himself, trusting in his own creation. And then in Isaiah, a couple of pages over, Isaiah continues, and in chapter 46, verse 7, he says, They lift it to their shoulders, they carry it, they set it in its place, and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. So these are man-made images, and they are lifeless objects. They have to be carried. It couldn't speak, it couldn't hear, it couldn't see, it couldn't save. Worthless idols. And the Babylonians not only had one god, they had many. Many gods that were made out of gold, silver, metal, wood. Ones that they would even feed, offering them food and wine three times a day. They made them, they believed in them, and they worshipped them. And so we can be sitting here today thinking, how can the Babylonians do such a crazy thing? Create idols and follow them. Absolutely ridiculous. Some of them said they followed the Lord, but they would also be bowing down to their own um, idols at the same time. Surely we don't do this, or do we? Well, I don't have any idols or statues at my house, and I'm, I'm sure you don't either, and we're not offering any sacrifices to the sun or the, to the moon or the stars. But hear this quote by Peter C. Craigie. Quote, Idolatry is essentially the worship of that which we make rather than of our maker, and that which we make may be found in our possessions, a home, a career, an ambition, a family, or a multitude of other thing, people or things. We worship them when they become the focal point of our lives, that for which we live, and as a goal and center of human existence. They are as foolish as any wooden idol or metal image." Unquote. 
a few of us last week um, around our table group, we were, we were talking about this questioning our believers, should we be enjoying vacations? Or is it, is it wrong to enjoy certain pleasures like um, playing sports or, or watching movies? And it all comes down to looking and trusting in things that become the focal point in our lives. Um, John Piper puts it this way, and um, I, I just found this to be really great. Um, quote, Enjoyment is becoming idolatrous when it is not permeated with gratitude. When our enjoyment of something tends to make us not think of God, it is moving toward idolatry. But if the enjoyment gives rise to the feeling of gratefulness to God, we are being protected from idolatry. The grateful feeling that we don't deserve the gift or this enjoyment, but have it freely from God's grace is evidence that idolatry is being checked. And he also says, enjoyment is becoming idolatrous when it draws us away from our duties. When we find ourselves spending time pursuing an enjoyment, knowing that other things or people should be getting our attention, we are moving into idolatry, end quote. So it's setting priorities on things, destroying our relationship with people and ultimately destroying our relationship with God. And our study guide mentions little gods, escapes that can become a habit when we desire or look to things to satisfy our needs. In Colossians 3, verse 5, Paul writes, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. And in Ephesians 5, 5, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So to covet, to covet is to wish or want or desire something that belongs to someone else. And this is idolatry. So let's think. There's money, there's wealth, status, power. We build idols in our hearts. Fitness, pleasure, material things. Do we look to these things to satisfy our needs, making them number one in our life? forgetting what we were created for, forgetting who we were created to worship. Throughout the Bible, it teaches us that we were created to worship God. Not our little gods, not the little things in life that may look impressive, that may be glittery, shiny, that may look like it has power and can give us all we need in life, fully satisfying us. Woe to him. And here's the warning. Verse 19. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake! To a silent stone, arise! Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. So idols, perhaps beautifully adorned with gold and silver, but they were useless, powerless idols. It doesn't move. It has no life, it can't teach, it can't do anything, it has no value. The Babylonians, they believed in them. Do we believe in them? 
They looked to them for guidance, for protection, for wisdom, but instead these idols led them away from the one true God. Idols full of lies, no truth, but instead deceit, disappointment, and destruction. Powerless idols. And if Habakkuk ended there, there, this would be so sad and hopeless. But there's one more verse for us to look at. Verse number 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. And what a contrast that is to what we just read before that. Here we have one true God, a majestic holy God who is worthy of our praise. Yes, the Lord was present in the earthly holy temple in Jerusalem that was built by Solomon, but that was just a small sample of the almighty God and a taste of his glory. The psalmist in Psalm 11 verse 4 says, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. And in Psalm 93, 1, the Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. God is on his heavenly throne. He reigns over all and he is all powerful. And this revelation comforted and strengthened Habakkuk. He knew that God was in control and is in full authority over all, and that God stood above all the nations. He is holy, the one true God. If the Babylonians would have only opened up their eyes and their hearts, they too would have seen this. But instead, what did they look to? They looked to powerless, silent, man-made idols, and they should have looked to Yahweh, to the God who made them, who created the universe. God was opposite from all that they had put their hope in. He was powerful, one who could speak, teach, and lead. And throughout the Psalms, we can read in numerous places of God's power. In Psalm 25, David tells us of God's goodness and power. Psalm 25, verse 8. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. And the psalmist throughout Psalm 119 declares in verse 12, Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. Verse 73, your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Verse 89 and 90, forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth and it stands fast. Verse 103 and 104, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. And verse 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Habakkuk's God creates, teaches, speaks, provides wisdom and understanding. He leads and guides. The Babylonians' gods, the Babylonians' gods could not do any of these things. The Babylonians were fighting in their own strength, having hardened hearts toward the one true God. But God's judgment would come. 
Their gods left them powerless with no direction and no hope. But what about us? Are we left to fight in our own strength? Are there big or little gods that are our priority in life? Is there judgment coming to us? Are we left powerless with no direction and no hope? Well, ladies, God had a plan, a plan to deliver his people from the bondage of sin. He would send his son, the promised Messiah, into the world. And through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus would come to seek and to save the lost, Luke 19.10. He would come to condemn, but to bring salvation to, he wouldn't, sorry, he wouldn't come to condemn, but to bring salvation to all who will receive saving humanity from their sins. And I love how Julius Kim from the Gospel Coalition, I love how he sums up the gospel in Habakkuk. He says, quote, The gospel shines forth in these themes of justice, mercy, wisdom, and providential provision. Whereas God seemed absent and inactive amid amid Habakkuk's doubt and distress, this book fits within the context of the Bible's larger story, that in the fullness of time, God himself, through through the person and work of Jesus Christ, would come in the flesh and bring justice and mercy for all. At the cross, Jesus receives justice for our sins of idolatry and immorality. Moreover, at the cross, Jesus secures the mercy of forgiveness to all who trust in his substitutionary work. Thus it is on the cross at Calvary that justice and mercy meet. Unquote. So God came to us in the face of Jesus Christ. The fullness of God's glory is now now in Jesus. He is the temple of God in the flesh. As believers, if we confess and turn from our sin, trusting and placing our faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells in us. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16 to 17. Do you know that you are God's temple? and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. We are God's temple, and the Holy Spirit dwells in us, and so we are not left powerless. We have direction, we have hope. And God speaks in 2 Timothy 3.16, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Those big or little idols, we now have the power to overcome them. Because of his mercy and grace and by his power, we can overcome sin. He alone is worthy of all our affection. And finally, let's look at the last part of verse 20. Let all the earth keep silence before him. This silence is a reverent, godly fear. We are to be still and silent before him. We wait in silence. In the silence, we recognize his greatness, his wisdom, and his power. Habakkuk, with all his questioning, he was to wait in silence being assured that God was in control and everything was going to happen in God's time. The Babylonians, with all their evil thoughts, actions, and following of false gods, they were to wait in silence. 
knowing that the Lord will judge the wicked, judge those that worshipped everything else but him. Us, with all the hard times we face, trials, health issues, we are to wait in silence, being assured of his timing. And it's not always easy to wait in silence, especially when we live in such a noisy, rushed, and chaotic world. But we need to stop. We need to wait in silence. It's then when we'll hear him speak and we're to worship him alone. So we have questions for ourselves, ladies. And what or whom are we placing our trust in things that have no value? Are our priorities in life drawing our attention to Christ or to our selfish desires? Is Christ being glorified in what we're doing? If we're clinging to or living for anything other than the one true God, this may be hard for us to hear, but woe to you. Woe to us. Judgment is coming. Let's be silent and let's worship him alone, committing our life to Christ fully and being transformed by his power because only he can satisfy. Everything else will not last and will lead us to nothing. Let me just end in prayer before we go into um, our small group questions. Lord, there are many things that may become little gods in our life, little gods that we put ahead of you or we may put in place of you. Perhaps we know what these idols are and we just um, pray that you convict us of that and forgive us, Lord. And um, we just need your power to help us. Perhaps we don't realize that we're putting other things first. We need your help to make us more aware of that. We need you to lead and direct us in a walk that is faithful to you, helping us turn back to the true worship of Jesus. May we love you with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our mind, with all our strength, for you are on the throne, worthy to be praised. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.